Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 387th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a tremendously gifted young actress who, over the course of a decade in screen acting, has become a major star. She first burst onto the scene in Sean Durkin's 2011 directorial debut, Martha Marcy May Marlene, a Sundance sensation for which she received a Breakthrough Actor Gotham Award nomination, Best Actress Critics' Choice and Spirit Award nominations, and a BAFTA EE Rising Star Award nomination. She subsequently did standout work in numerous other indies, including 2013's Kill Your Darlings, 2015's I Saw the Light, and 2017's Ingrid Goes West and Wind River. And on TV, in the Facebook watch drama series Sorry for Your Loss, which ran for two seasons spanning 2018 through 2019. But chances are you know her primarily as a result of her joining the Marvel family in 2013 to portray Wanda Maximoff, a.k.a. Scarlet Witch, a Sokovian mutant with the power of chaos magic. It's a character she portrayed on the big screen with limited screen time in 2014's Captain America the Winter Soldier, 2015's Avengers Age of Ultron, 2016's Captain America Civil War, 2018's Avengers Infinity War, and 2019's Avengers Endgame, and then again this year on the small screen as the central character of the limited series WandaVision. Disney Plus's first MCU TV series and the first series in Phase 4 of the MCU, for which she has garnered rave reviews and considerable Emmy buzz. I'm talking, of course, about Elizabeth Olsen. Over the course of our conversation, the 32-year-old and I discussed why the child stardom of her older twin sisters, Mary-Kate and Ashley, actually made her less interested in pursuing screen acting before adulthood, the fateful series of events that led to her breakthrough first year in the business, during which she made five films, auditioned for the part of Daenerys on Game of Thrones, and battled debilitating panic attacks. Why, despite some reservations about appearing on a new TV platform after her frustrating prior experience with Facebook Watch, she still agreed to do WandaVision, even though it would go out to the world through Disney+, Plus and why she so enjoyed playing Wanda over the course of its nine half-hour episodes, which recreated multiple eras of TV sitcoms, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Great to see you. I was just saying I had looked at my notes, and the last time I had the chance to interview you, it was Toronto Film Festival two thousand. 11 so it's can't believe 10 years goes by that fast but great to get to speak with you again how have you been good i actually i did the very stupid thing and tried to um watch our last interview and it took me 30 (laughs) seconds because i i said totally i think six times within those 30 seconds (laughs) and i was i was just like i had so much compassion for this girl but i was so irritated by her at the same time so i had to turn it off well, that was really, I guess you had you had popped at Sundance in January of that year, but was that the first real media barrage you were having to deal with in Toronto? Completely. Yeah. Wow. I mean, other than Sundance and Toronto, Toronto was the next thing where I ever had to do press. I had no yeah. idea, no idea what, <laughs> how to talk about anything. I mean, it was, it, I mean, in hindsight, it was a very, it's a very strange thing to think about your first, your first press tour um, when I you bet. really, uh don't 
read things like the trades. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say I'm jealous of you because you look exactly the same, but I I definitely (laughs) look like I've aged 10 years. So anyway, but um, some of this may be a little repetitive uh, from what we talked about before, but it's just on this podcast, which was born since that last conversation, it's all about going back through the the major moments of a life and career. And so, of course, we've got to start right at the beginning. Can you just share for our listeners where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living? Yes, I was I was born and raised in the valley. I was, born, I was raised everywhere in the valley. We covered <laughs> quite a span of the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. Um, my father hopped around from like mortgage to real estate when mortgage became a, a bad business in the, when was it? The late nineties, early aughts or some, sometime. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my mom, my mom was a stay at home mom. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, people constantly have brought up as uh, you know, the fact that you have, family members who are in this business, older sisters. Mm -hmm. But I think that one thing that maybe they don't realize, and I learned this really in the course of preparing for that prior conversation, was that that, you know, yes, you occasionally appeared in some of their, you know, little cameos in some of their projects. But the reality is, it seems like that made you less interested in being a child actor yourself, right? I mean, that you, you very consciously put that off. Yeah, I I mean I I think there is there is an innate feeling of wanting to perform and whether that was because I was the fourth child in a family and wanted attention or because I just loved musicals, my mom loved musicals, my mom was a dancer. So I from a very young age wanted to go to every camp, every class that I could that had to do with dance, singing and acting. And what my sisters did was a job and not playtime. And I recognized that when I, I, I did try to audition for, I think it was like a hot three months when I was maybe 10 or around 10. And, um, I could, I had to stop doing everything else that I enjoyed doing as a, as a, as a kid, because I, you know, you, you stop going to classes, you stop going after school, you can't learn to, you can't learn the choreography for your ballet for the Christmas productions. You can't do that anymore. You can't play in a sports team if you miss so many games and practices. And, and I cared about all those things. And part of me thought, oh God, as you get older and junior high and early years of high school, you're so self-conscious. And I was so self-conscious about this identity of like what it meant to be an actor in Los Angeles. And I think I I, I was like, oh, well, that's that's crazy. Everyone wants to be an actor. That's why they move here. It's so stupid. And then I just be, had a, had good, great friends, a great community, and found um, that I could still study. Theater felt safer, but that I could still study acting and it feel significant and not um, not silly. So... So, yeah. So then I just continued to study and it continued to be a passion of mine. And the college I ended up going to in New York, NYU, I went to the Atlantic Theater Company and I literally, because of them, met my agent, started understudying and, and it all, and then Martha happened while I was still in college. And so, uh, Martha Marcy made Marlene, my first film that came out. And so that was, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was, 
it was quite a roller coaster. It wasn't like, you know, I was in Arizona or Ohio and I was like, <laughs> I want to be an actor. Let's move. Right, <laughs> it was definitely, right. it was definitely more of a realistic experience of, of what, what that, what that looked like. Cause I was watching it happen and, and it was really hard. Well, let's, before we get into any of the professional stuff, let's zero in on a few of these things that, I mean, you talked about that moment at 10 where you thought maybe this is something you'd want to do. But even then, if I if my info is correct, you had some awareness that I mean, what was the reason I believe you wanted to go by a different name? <laughs> yeah, I mean, first <laughs> off, that's become blown so out of proportion. It's such an easy headline, which is like mortifying because my whole point when I was trying to like correct the last interview was. I was 10 years old when right. I had this thought and I was not an adult. Let's like, it was a 10 year old child. But, um, but yes, I had this idea of, um, well, I, I want to be me, you know, as a 10 year old, I want to be my own person. And so I, you know, I thought, I thought, well, you know, I loved my middle name too. Um, so I just thought that would be, that would be the way to go. But yeah, it, it um, I think I even ha I have a headshot that I think says Elizabeth Chase and really, you know, when I was, yeah, I think I have that somewhere That's cool. that my dad's, I gave my dad's friend is like a joke when I was a kid <laughs> and he sent me a picture of it recently, which was really funny that he still had it. Well, and okay. So that was one moment. And then you decided to table that for the reasons you mentioned, but I guess the, the next big thing was that you were a standout athlete as a teen, right? You were, th that was the trajectory, <laughs> not, not theater. Right. So, but there, as is the case with a lot of these conversations, there's a teacher who makes all the difference. Who was the teacher for you who kind of made you look at this all anew? Um, the Campbell Hall has a high school drama teacher named Josh Adele, and he taught classes about Stanislavski and the origins of the American way of acting with um, Stella Adler and Sanford Meisner and Lee Strasberg going over to Russia and coming back and starting their own acting studios. And that introduced this um, rich history that I, I didn't really care that much about American history at the time in high school. Now I do, but wish I cared more then. But anything that had to do with that felt like it enrich, it, it would enrich in my knowledge of being an actor, I, like this academic side of things I was drawn to. And so it really opened up this, this amazing, deep history. And just, um, I don't, there was like a, like a tradition that, um, that, that we learned about and different ways of creating characters. And it was just, it was really uh, it felt really sophisticated as opposed to playtime. Yeah. And so I guess with this newfound enthusiasm to pursue particularly theater, you go off to NYU Tisch. And actually, though, to continue with the, I guess, the trajectory that started with that teacher, didn't you, stu you went for a period while you were there to study in Moscow, right? Yeah, I did. <laughs> so was that what... That was about the like pursuing really like the the Stanislavski stuff back to the roots. Yeah. So when I when I went to theater school, which was first off a conservatory is mortifying. I felt like I didn't know half the things other people knew about theater. I just like really knew Chekhov, and like that was like my that was my thing because I I loved it so much um, in high school. 
And then I had, you know, some deep cut, Jose Rivera, like deep cuts or something. (laughs) But other than that, like I was, I was the Chekhov kid and became good friends with another guy in, in school who also felt the same way. And he was the one who found it, Ben Katz. He's, he's an actor. He, he was the one that found a way to go to Russia. And it was our first semester of our third year in, in school. And he and I went through the Eugene O'Neill Theater and with a bunch of other students from around the country and did an English program with translators um, at the Moscow Theater School, which was... Um, which was an incredible experience. And it was an incredible experience because it was 2009. It was before they invaded Ukraine. It was before the Sochi Olympics. It was before all these things that became really divisive coming from an American standpoint. So it, it yeah. still relatively felt um, just kind of like this, this, uh, this, this foreign space to explore of creativity because the foundation of Russia really, really relies on their artists to inform the people and not the government. Well, and the fact that you even undertook that trip is kind of interesting because by that point, it was almost putting off what for a lot of people would have been the most, the ultimate thing, right? You got prior to that, I think, an agent, which would have meant a whole bunch of opportunities that now had to be delayed by a semester, at least while you were away. So I guess it's worth going back and saying like, so you're at NYU. How do you wind up, first of all, before Russia, understudying both off Broadway and on Broadway and with this agent? That's that's a lot in a short amount of time. Yeah. So, I mean, I was a hardworking student, you know, (laughs) very disciplined and luckily the Atlantic theater company is a theater company and um as well as a school so there was a Martin McDonough play Cripple of Enishman that was coming to the Atlantic theater company from the Druid theater company and so they had some of the the actors in in the school as well as professional actors get an opportunity to audition for the understudy part while it was in New York and that casting director then, well, first off, sorry, what came first? What came first was Scott Ziegler is, uh, is, is one of the people who created Practical Aesthetics, which, which is like Atlantic Theater Company's Bible of how to act that um, he was one of the writers on it. And he does a summer program for people who have had at least a year of Atlantic Theater Company school in Vermont, or he did at, through ART. And so I went there one summer, and then when he came into New York, he he had a play that he was directing off-Broadway. So he gave me my first off-Broadway audition to understudy. So I understudied that, and then I had the opportunity from the Atlantic Theater Company to audition for Cripple Vinishman as an understudy, and then that casting director, I didn't get it, and then that, another student did. And then that casting director asked me to audition for um, this Broadway show called Impressionism. And so I got that job. And during that time, because of my name being in a playbill for Impressionism and my agent being who she is that sees literally everything in theater, (laughs) she, um, she, she represented one of the teachers at my school and asked her 
you have a student that's understudying what she like. And that's how I met her. That's I mean, that's cause... such, it's so many stupid steps along the way to explain, but it was no, a really incredible it... thing. Yeah. Cause it shows you if one of those steps had not happened, who knows where this all would have led at this moment. So, uh, yeah. In the meantime, though, I guess you get the agent, you go off to Moscow, have a interesting experience there, come back and then are basically bombarded with, with, scripts including the ones that became the first the first projects yeah so then i just start auditioning for anything and mm -hmm. everything and auditioning has always been something i've enjoyed i know other actors hate auditioning i i enjoy the nerves aspect i don't like nerves when it comes to like i hate presenting awards i hate talking in front of um crowds of people but i love the nerves of an audition and you know, you're your own, your own worst enemy in an audition. You either like are prepared or you're not prepared. And then after that, you know, nothing's in your control. So it's kind of fun to have that be this safe space of what you want to do with this part. So there's like a CSI opportunity, but um, I would have had to miss class and I couldn't do that. But then the summertime came and I was auditioning for Shakespeare in the Park and they were doing two shows in rep that year. And I got down to the final round, but I didn't get it. And that broke my heart. And then I got two movie jobs for that summer. And so I wouldn't have been available anyway. So it all was supposed to happen. <laughs> but um, the first yeah, movie yeah. I got was this um, family film called Peace, Love and Misunderstanding mm -hmm. that Bruce Beresford. You and Jane Fonda. Yeah, me and yeah. Jane Fonda and Keener, um, Bruce Beresford uh, directed. And that was my first experience filming a movie. And that was informative, but not as informative as Martha Marcy May Marlene, which overlapped a little bit with that film, also in upstate New York, because that was just a bunch of like really creative students where Bruce Beresford brought in a bunch of veterans. And mm -hmm. those polar opposite experiences were really, you know, in hindsight more so than in the moment. They were really, they're really incredible to get to have this like technical thing where I didn't really learn, know anything until I was showed up and understood lenses a little bit, but not really. And then this more fluid experience of telling a story where like even the gaffer cared about the script, mm -hmm. you know, it was just, yeah, or not even the gaffer, but every single person on the group cared well, about the you. script. Well, I mean, Martha Marcy in particular, obviously ended up being the one that pop the most but before we even so i'm going to ask you of course about that but first i want to ask you i guess this would have been in referring to the period right before you went started making these movies i think but you have a quote here from somewhere um quote when i was 20 and living in new york i started having severe panic attacks it was really bad like i was going to pass out close quote so if this was pre-screen career is that just taking on so much while you were at nyu or did you ever figure out what that was it wasn't actually, I guess I was wrong with the age when I said it. I started getting panic attacks the fall, winter after I filmed Martha, Marcy, and Marlene. But before so it, it had after, come out. Yeah, before it had come out. Yeah. I think it might, yeah, I think it was before Sundance even. It could have been after Sundance. I'm not sure. But I just remember it was winter in LA and I had my first panic attack in a restaurant. And I thought I had, I thought I was having um, like a blood sugar fainting thing. And I'm, not because I'm not like a 
anxiety person mm -hmm. or I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a healthy young kid. And so it just hit me in a restaurant. And I was with some of the people that I did Martha with. And one of them, you know, drove his car behind my car on the way home because I was so freaked out about what was happening in my body. And so then that just became six months of really trying to navigate press and navigate uh, my next job. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't press. I can't remember. Yeah, maybe it was press, but it was press for before. The, yeah, it was press for the festivals, I guess. And then I had to do another. I did another movie in Barcelona and I didn't tell them that something was wrong with me. And you weren't, you didn't get yourself prescribed anything. Like, I mean, I've had them too. I'm not, not from acting, obviously, mm. but like once you've identified it and dealt with it, it can be okay. But you, you had not really nailed down what it was. No. And then eventually, cause I thought I was just going to go away. Um, and then it wasn't. And so I went to a doctor, I got my heart scan, my brain scan, you know, I got all the things scanned and he told me that it sounds like panic attacks. And so he prescribed me Ativan eventually, but I was so scared to take the Ativan mm -hmm. that I had a, like a girlfriend come over while I tried like half of the smallest dose. Cause I was totally mortified about taking a prescription drug. Cause, um, you know, I just, I, it wasn't something I had ever had to do before, but it became more of a, a mind game yeah than anything else than 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 like an something else luckily i was able to control it eventually through brain tricks but in hindsight do you i mean obviously we, one can never really know what i guess triggers stuff like that but i guess do you think it was the knowledge that with those movies about to come out and you know your life was going to change you had not been a public person unlike yeah. Others in your family, like you, but you probably knew what that could come with. I guess I wonder, do you think that was part of it? I do think it must be. I mean, I, at that moment, I, anytime someone said your life's about to change, I was like, oh, well, it's not, I'm still living in like a 400 square foot <laughs> apartment and, uh, I have boxes cause I can't unpack them cause I don't have a space. Like I, like nothing really felt like change except for continuing to work. But I do think that has to be somehow part of it. And then I also think it had something to do with a minor, could be like a minor head injury that happened before, because that's also, it could be a cause of um, panic disorders or um, a sense of a, a sort of physical vertigo with having disalignment in your ears. And so it could have been a combination of a few things and... I don't now now it's connected to like going to an award show. Now yeah, it's connected to yeah. all those other things that they that was completely irrelevant. It was just about like crossing the street or something before. And then it became uh what if something crazy happens to me on live television? Ugh. Well, I guess um with the knowledge that that was going on in the background now, we should just come back to Martha Marcy because here the the thing is, I guess would even you have suspected only from the uh, from the script that this could be a, a real game changer. I mean, we should I don't had Sean directed a this is Sean Durkin. Had he directed a movie before a feature? He directed he just directed a short. OK, um, he directed two shorts at that time, one in college and then 
um, Mary last scene was his short. I think that he filmed in order to get financing. Yeah. So he casts you and Sarah Paulson. So, I mean, she was, yes. she's, her profile's gotten bigger since then, but I mean, she was still yeah. Sarah Paulson. I mean, knowing that this is the first time a project's really going to be shouldered by you because you're, I, I think Peace, Love, Misunderstanding was, you know, more Jane Fonda's show. Here it's you. So I guess I wonder, did you recognize that it had the potential to be something like what it became? And then was what was that like to actually do? I don't think I did because at that point I was, um, ignorance was really like my best friend. I hadn't been auditioning for a really long time. I hadn't been, um, I've been in like a theater school brain mindset and I knew more about what was happening at Somerset than I did at Sundance. Like I just wasn't, I hadn't shifted to honestly caring about independent film beyond me going to like quad cinema in New York or something and seeing a movie by myself. Like I love doing that. I love independent films, but the, but I didn't have an attachment to how the industry viewed things. I didn't even really know how to look from that perspective. Right. So luckily i made this, it was the only time I feel like I could have made a project in complete ignorance. And, um, and I, and I wish that that feeling could be recreated over and over again. <laughs> well, and, and it is amazing that just as, you know, in terms of, I believe the order that these things rolled out, you had Martha Marcy and silent house at Sundance, right? Then you had yeah. Martha Marcy and peace and love, peace, love and misunderstanding at Toronto. And then the next Sundance, you've got two more liberal arts, and Red Lights, I believe, both at Sundance. Again, all five had been made by you within something like a year, right? That's a lot of yeah. activity. Yeah, it must have been like, yeah, it must have been a year. That's crazy to think about because I hardly want to do like two things in a year. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I was filming Red Lights, just panicking the whole time. <laughs> just, I really want to see Killian again at some point and just... And, and just say that like the whole time we were filming that movie, I was having panic attacks on camera every single time we were working. And I was, and all I was could rely on is the fact that my brain remembered words. Like that was the only thing, but like, oh God, what a, it was such a crazy experience. But yes, lots of Sundances. Lots of Sundances, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you got the crash course in Sundance, but um, <laughs> I guess, and also just not to gloss over, but I mean, Silent House sounds like the main thing there was that you're doing very, this would cause anxiety for anybody, very long takes where you could be 10, 12 minutes into it. And one thing, it none of it matters if one thing goes wrong, right? Yeah. That was an experience that if I, if that were the first movie I shot, I would be like, I don't need to make movies. <laughs> it was so uncomfortable and miserable. And but I really um, Igor Martinovich was the DP on that. And I just adored working with him. And he and I were like he was my scene partner because of that, <laughs> because of the way we shot it. Right. This may be BS, like some stuff that's out there, but in any of this rough time period. Was there ever anything to do with Game of Thrones? Yes, I auditioned for Game of Thrones. I auditioned I auditioned for like the, the assistant to the casting director in a small room in New York with just like a camera on me and them reading the script. And I was doing the Khaleesi speech when she comes out of the fire. 
Oh my it was god! What? So you <laughs> you were gonna be Daenerys, Khaleesi, right? No, was no? not gonna be. No, well... I was part of the first round of auditions. <laughs> I didn't get a call back. Uh, well, but I mean, that's, that was awful. That's an interesting tidbit, though, that that was going on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I think that was. I, I think that that story came up because someone said, "What was your least favorite audition experience?" And I, like I said, enjoy audition. Yeah. And I somehow my brain was like, "See, you auditioned for Game of Thrones. That was horrible." <laughs> and it just happened to me the first time I ever remembered and said it. Well, I wonder was that that might might have been the original incarnation because I think there was the Tom McCarthy pilot, right, or something before the one that actually right. went. Was this when it was a different actress? Okay, so this was it was the first round. First round, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I will. Note one other one before we get to the movies that have had higher profiles, but Kill Your Darlings was another festival movie that, you know, sometimes they get a longer life than others afterwards. But this was 2013. So after those five in a row of like one year, just crazy. Um, here you were Jack Kerouac's first wife. And I remember seeing that in Toronto. But OK, so then meanwhile, just a, another thing that if I have it correct, it's kind of hard to believe. But throughout all of that period, everything we've been talking about so far, while you were not at NYU, maybe physically, you were continuing to pursue your degree? Oh, no, they would never let me do that. No, I had to continue my degree in school. <laughs> wow. So I would go I would I would work for the majority of the year. And then I was doing winter and summer school in order to finish my degree. So winter, winter semester was like uh, three weeks and then summer semester was six weeks. And so I was just picking up on what I owed in credits during that time because I'd already completed my drama conservatory portion of my degree. So it was just it was just the, these courses, which is actually, you know, I kind of still wish I could just take a course for three weeks or six weeks and be allowed to do that. It it was pretty I mean, it was frustrating. Like I remember having to tell, I remember having to tell a teacher, my paper is late. I was at Sundance Film Festival and that's why. <laughs> like I didn't even try and say, can I get an extension? Right. I was like, I know I'm late. I mismanaged my time. Right. <laughs> but I mean, that's a, that's a quite a testament to you that you kept at it. I mean, it's your, your career was now, it wasn't like a, a one thing that might've been a fluke. You had a few credits at this point. Why was it important to you to keep doing it? Keep, keep going at NYU. Well, I love, I did love, I genuinely love school. Mm -hmm. I love being a student. Um, but I think the driving force was anyone who was like, yeah, I knew you wouldn't finish or uh, whatever. Like, I just had to, I had to do it. <laughs> there was just like whoever, whoever had mentioned things like, oh, there's no way you're finishing school if you start working. I just need, I needed to do it. I'm a competitive person in some, and I try not to compete with other people, right. but I'm very competitive if someone gives me a challenge. Well, I think it's amazing. So you graduated in 2013 and really the only other person who's had a, uh, you know, a similar kind of popped at a young age and kept in school that I can remember, maybe I'm forgetting people, was Natalie Portman, right? I mean, I think she finished Harvard, I think, while, yeah. anyway, it's an amazing uh, thing. But, okay, at, in terms of the film work at that, at, around that time, that's when you started to do some of these bigger scale things like 
old boy with Spike Lee, Godzilla, Gareth Edwards, and then the beginning of Marvel. And I just wonder, was there was this in any way a reaction to the fact that up to that point, they had been pretty much exclusively indie uh, movies where often you were somebody who was a little troubled or whatever. Was it was this a, a reaction against not wanting to be typecast in some way? Probably. Yeah, I, I never I've never wanted to be put in a, in a box as an actor. And I certainly avoided anything that attached like youth and beauty to being an actor. That was something that I didn't that I felt like was damaging to a career if if that's something that you think defines you and it becomes limiting. So there are a couple of things happening, right? I'd only started working for a few years. I didn't really know how to make a good judgment call on what makes a good project. I hadn't quite figured out my pillars as an actor yet. What I did know is I like blockbuster movies as well, but I'm not being considered for them. Why is that? And so then I started taking generals and Gareth, luckily with Godzilla, Gareth Edwards um, knew me because he's from independent world. And that's why he asked me to be a part of it. But beyond that, when it comes to Marvel, um, that was a general when it come, when it came to like a few bigger studios, they were all these conversations that are really kind of awkward. And, but you there, everyone asks you, what do you want to work on? And I truly didn't, know how to verbalize that at the time, but I knew, I knew that I liked, I knew that I liked art house films. I knew that I liked Cassavetes, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like I knew that I, I knew that I cared about cinema, but I also found Indiana Jones and star Wars to be the most thrilling films I ever saw growing up. And I wanted a piece of that. Yeah, totally. And uh, if anyone doubts the genuineness of what you're saying, I think they should go watch that you reacted the way a lot of us would have with uh, meeting Mark Hamill, right? That was a, a big oh moment. My God. <laughs> so, so, yeah, put put that like child history with like thousands of people screaming in a premiere <laughs> and like being jet lagged. And I just was so overwhelmed. No, I that don't was blame so you stupid. at all. I, I want to. <laughs> I wanted so to cry genuine, too. It's so, <laughs> so stupid. Well, the, the... like hyperventilating. <laughs> Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get twenty percent below MSRP for an average of fifteen thousand one seventy eight under MSRP on the purchase of a twenty twenty three Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland four by e or Summit four by e. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Um, I guess, obviously, a, a, a question, you know, that comes about you. It was also in 2013 that I think you first signed on to have an involvement with Marvel. How does that come? I know you're saying sometimes there's general meetings that, but is that the same process or is there, are you sort of like, I feel like it's, it's like um, skull and bones or something where they must recruit you to, you know, they're, they're monitoring you and like, where where did this come from? I did take a general there. I took a general at Marvel. Yeah. Jeremy Latcham. And I, I I really can't remember who else was in the meeting with me besides Jeremy Latcham because I don't think it was Kevin. And, um, uh, it was just me say, I knew they were making more movies. They had uh, new things coming up. And so it was just a general, but Joss Whedon 
um, had offered me the part of Wanda and Aaron the part of Pietro uh, when we were doing reshoots for Godzilla. And so Aaron and I kind of did this thing together where we were like, are you going to do it? Should we do it? Should we do it together? Like it was this, this fun kind of fun, odd circumstance that that's who Joss paired together. Um, and I had, and I had, I had a breakfast with Joss. I had like tea with Joss in LA and that's, and that's where it went. Now the, did, was the general meeting at, at Marvel it was separate from that or it was knowing that Josh, yeah. had, uh, Josh, it was. Okay. So which came, it was came, separate. Okay. The general meeting came first okay. and then, and then, and then there was something that was, that, that was, you know, tangible and Joss, they couldn't even tell me what I was meeting him about. You know, I just went to this tea thing and he told me the scar, like, look up the Scarlet Witch, look at these comics, know that. And he truly said, know that you'll never have to wear a leotard and tights and you'll never have to wear that crown. Um, or the headband, I think is what he called it. And went back, did my research, learned a lot from my brother who knew the comics and talked to Aaron about it. And and that was that was a very exciting thing for me. I was I was very excited to get that official call. So just any truth, I had read one thing where they may I don't know if this was even with your knowledge, but did you ever hear that they had thought about you for Sharon Carter and Winter Soldier as well. Was that something that it... I never heard that. Okay. I don't know. Again, it could be, could be BS. Oh my God. Did Kevin, that'd be funny if Kevin said, I I never I'll heard that. To, I'll have to go back and look where that came from. But, but <laughs> Wanda, you know, just so people know, because this would then affect many years of your life through the present, uh, yeah. you know, basically originated, I guess, in print in 1964. If people haven't somehow seen any of this yet and they want to go back and look i guess is it is it a correct way to synopsize her that basically it's it's wanda maximoff slash scarlet witch she's a mutant with with power to guess i guess create chaos magic chaos magic yeah yeah and yeah she has she has a few she has a few fun you know powers (laughs) that you know telekinesis and she's she can travel between universes yes so for you the idea that this could be a big part of your life for years to come was that I guess you you were not a huge comic nerd prior to this, but did you like when you signed on, were you, were you signing on for years and years or did, what was the, what was the original commitment? I signed on for two and a cameo. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I I've gone through three rounds of contracts with Marvel already. I just do like, I just do like a uh, appetizers. <laughs> They never, they never had me over for the big meal. And, um, and it's, and it really has benefited me because they only continue to use me, not because they have to, but because they think there's story that, that, that can be used. And so I have always felt, you know, even though I've had my own scheduling conflicts that have broken my heart in certain moments, I have always felt like they they had a plan for me and never really let me in on what that plan was. <laughs> but I knew that they would only use me if it was useful. Yeah, no, it's a it's a actually an upside, I guess, of the not signing. What is it? Sometimes it can be what, like seven years Six, of your nine. Like, so, yeah. yeah. People sign like six movie, nine movie deals. I've heard I'm, it's um, that's a lot. Yeah. 
and I, they didn't really know how, how much further I was going to, I was going to go. And I, you know, we never knew if we were going to even touch half of the stuff we did in WandaVision. Right. Well, you mentioned that there were things that you've had to let go because of the time commitment of, of these. I'd read the lobster was maybe one of those. Is mm-hmm. that true? Any yeah. others that yep. still hurts? The lobster. <laughs> <laughs> How about any others that uh, really stand out in your memory? No, the other one that 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 does stand out in my mind, though, I kind of want to keep to myself because okay, sure. the lobster was more of like this. It wasn't like um, Yorgos propositioned it as a, an ensemble, like, you know, which character would you be interested in? I was thinking of you for this. And then the schedule conflict came with um, uh, Ultron. And and so I just kind of I kind of wish that could have been worked out. But um, not kind of, I do wish. But the other job is like, you know, we know who played the part. So it feels a little different than like the ensemble of the fair lobster. Enough, fair enough. We can quickly note before we get into the the great work that you have done for Marvel that you did somehow, I guess, when you could have been on a beach somewhere, you did do other work in between these Marvel movies that was very good. Let's. Sh- I'm just going to quickly throw out a few and if you have anything you want to say about it, but... Another movie I remember seeing at Toronto, being impressed by, was I Saw the Light. You and Tom Hiddleston as the Williamses, Hank and Mrs. Williams. Uh, anything you want to say about that one? Yeah, that was a special. That was one of those jobs that just feel. I mean, didn't end up with the kind of response that you would want, but um, the experience of making that project was was incredible. We had the loveliest crew and the greatest time. It was like true that that experience was true joy. And I, if I, if I don't have something nice to say, then I don't say anything at all. But that was one of the, one of the greatest experiences with a crew and a cast caring about something. And it was also me getting, being able to do something period. And um, which, which I love, I love just like the nerdy homework of being an actor and, um, and figuring out dialects and mannerisms and the costumes and the hair. And I, and it was the, you know, country music. It was, it was, it was really a great time. Absolutely. Mark Abraham, the director has become a good friend of mine. Yeah, That was 2015. Then in 2017, you had two indie, you know, really well done movies that maybe does, I think deserved a larger audience maybe than they got. Ingrid Goes West, you were the original social media influencer, I guess. Uh, <laughs> that has now uh, become a thing. Uh, anything about that? Yeah, that was, that was, cra- that was a crazy experience. <laughs> it was, I mean, there's like, it, it felt like gorilla shooting the way we filmed that movie. And the fact that, that Matt Spicer was able to create a film from all the crazy things that happened while shooting that movie between like fires and squatters and location issues. It was just, it was hard. And he did such a fabulous job. And Aubrey and I just, I need to figure out how we do something else together. Um, We've thrown out some ideas with one another, but I really did. I loved it. I loved working with Aubrey. Well, that same year was also Wind River, which you and Jeremy Renner outside of MCU, um, and uh, uh, you're playing FBI agent sent to investigate a death at a Native American reservation. And I think the the kind of tragedy of that movie was that it obviously got caught up right in the aftermath of this was a Weinstein Company movie that you guys were able to extricate, but it never got the the um, 
full love that it deserved, despite I know a lot of grassroots efforts. I guess is that when something like that happens, when you just I guess it's out of your hands to some extent, right? You just have to it's it's got to be hard when you know you've done great work and it's just not being as seen as it should be, right? Yeah, I mean, it was totally out of our hands. Also, I mean, I think the thing that was too bad was he bought the movie. You know, he didn't make the movie. Right. Um, but no matter what, it's associated with him. And what he was, what was happening with him is so much greater and bigger and larger than a film. And so you, your perspectives are are there, you know, what's 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 really important. Um and especially like the irony in some ways of our movie and what was going yeah. on with with him when it comes to legally uh it was bizarre yes. um but um really proud of that film and proud of like how it was made with the amount of integrity it was made and um yeah i taylor did a great job i mean it was his first time directing after um, his two very successful films as a screenwriter. And that was one of the hardest jobs I've ever done to this day. And it felt amazing. It felt amazing to be so physically taxed every single day in high altitude in the snow mm-hmm. on, you know, moving equipment on snowmobiles and snow cats. It was, it really felt like a feat. And I, and I learned a lot of just physical training that I'd never done before. And it was, um, yeah, I'm really proud of that yeah. that that one driver. Well, I another one that you were extraordinary in, and I think it's just one of these things with the era of peak TV. First of all, we should say it's your first, I guess, foray into was your first foray into TV on Facebook Watch was um, you know, playing a grieving young widow in Sorry for Your Loss, two seasons, 2018, 2019. I guess, first of all, you know the decision to even do that, knowing the headspace that that would demand of you for as long as, you know, potentially multiple seasons as it ended up being. Um, I know you at one point said you connected to the character because you yourself quote felt broken at the time, close quote. I have no idea what the context of that is. Maybe you don't want to share, but I just thought it was an interesting, you know, thing to, uh, to sign up for and then do it. You know, there are people that have actually raised parallels between, Sorry for your loss and WandaVision in the sense that uh, a young woman dealing with grief, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, just anything you want to say about that one? Yeah, sorry for your loss. That came to me. It must have been 2016. I had moved from New York to L.A. and I had just been going through like a big transition. And it was the first time something was sent to me. It was a pilot at, and said, you know, does she want to come on early and become a producer on it? And so I had never had that experience and I was interested in what that meant. And I was interested in seeing the entirety of a process and we developed it. Uh, Kit Steiner Kellner wrote it and Robin Schwartz from Big Beach produced it and we pitched it all together. We developed it first at Showtime and then it kept was taking too long and they wanted to renew contracts and we just went out again instead and it landed at Facebook because they ordered 10 episodes and right off the bat. And I was really uh, hesitant. It was really hard for me to do press talking about it because everyone wanted to ask about Facebook. I was really hesitant to, to be a part of a new streaming service that I felt like didn't 
quite have its kinks worked out yet. And that is what was our experience (laughs) was was being on a service that didn't have their kinks worked out yet. So when we went back to second season, you know, we tried as, as much as we could to give our feedback and figure out like, how can we make this a better viewing experience for the audience? But that, that show truly uh, was an incredibly formative time for me and how I collaborate and the type of collaborator I want to be. And you were executive producer, right? As well. Yeah. Yeah. And so you work Monday through Friday on camera and then Saturday I took off and then Sunday were notes on edits and scripts and memorizing. And I, I loved that focus. I loved being a part of, I love writing essays. So I love structure. And so I loved being a part of this structure. I loved being a part of post-production and sound design and music and uh, color correcting and editing. And I cannot wait to produce something again. I needed to not produce something and just be an actor after the after doing that for two seasons. But the second season truly ran straight into, we. I didn't even get a finished post on the second season before I had to go off to WandaVision. Do you think it in any way help your performance with WandaVision to have to have played someone like that uh going like what Lee went through I don't think it was the crossover of the grief that helped it was like the engine I felt like I became I felt like I became like I I'm I'm scared to take this summer off and then work and fall because I felt so oiled and like ready to go um and we worked at a fever pace on WandaVision and so it was, um, it was, it was really important to have physically felt like an engine. I, I think of the two characters in the same way I would think of like two humans in the world going through grief. No one's going to have the same experience. And so, right. um, yes, I am a common denominator, but you know, the stories are, are the, and these characters are completely separate. So I, in my mind, I, they're just separate. Even though Jack sure. Schaefer, our creator of WandaVision, asked me, like, is there any way that we can, you know, explore something that you haven't gotten to explore or something on your show? And um, and I was like, no, forget it. Like, forget about it. Like, this is <laughs> it will. It is different. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, OK, so that leads into WandaVision. But I guess really before we can talk about WandaVision, let's let's just note the prior times that people had seen Wanda in Marvel films were Captain America, the Winter Soldier, just the post-credits kind of cameo, right? That's 2014, 2015, uh, and that was the Russo brothers. Then 2015, Joss Whedon with Avengers Age of Ultron. This is where there's that sort of lingering eye contact that maybe suggests there's going to be something next with Wanda and Vision down the road, right? And where he swoops in and rescues you. I guess then next, again, the Russos with Captain America Civil War 2016 with the paprika uh scene (laughs) which um i know that uh, i think it would have been jack who said that that was like a big springing off point for wandavision just that there was clearly that or or you know uh, just a very memorable scene i I know feige's talked about that too Uh, and then of course avengers infinity war in 18 and avengers endgame in 19 with the russos again on both so there was after i guess endgame this now 18-month period between Endgame and the debut of, of WandaVision where there was no 
Marvel content for people, partly because of the pandemic, which pushed back uh, Black Widow and the Eternals. But I guess, I, you know, so this was there was a lot of hunger when <laughs> when WandaVision <laughs> debuted in, uh, I think, January. For you, how long had it been on your radar that this was going to be something that you were even going to go to do? Uh, it was in between Infinity War and, and finishing Endgame is when it was pitched me. Because my, my, again, I it was finishing, you know, round two with yeah. Marvel, yeah. with Endgame. And so um, Kevin had me come into his office and explained his uh, concept for WandaVision at its, like, most, you know, skeleton way. That was his idea of marrying her life experience through sitcom. And knowing that that was something that she relied on as a child to cope. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to explore that because he loved television yeah. so much growing up. And I, I immediately started thinking about like Twilight, the Twilight Zone aspect of what that could look like based on the episodes that I, of Twilight Zone that I had sure. seen. And I was thinking about, I should really look up what this episode was called or the, the portion of the, might have been from the film, where the kid is obsessed with the television and, and it gets the the bunny to come into the room from outside the TV. And he had these horrible parents. And I just remember that being so haunting as a, as a, as an image when I was a child and I was like, Oh God, that'd be so cool if we could create something as, you know, something twisted in that way. And so that's how long I knew about WandaVision. Yes. Was it an immediate yes for you? I mean, this is very different than what you had done with them up to that point in terms of you were with the big group, you were on the big screen now to have a, you know, Disney plus smaller screen, but you know, it, it's now proven to be a, a, a great platform, but I think that it, who knew what it was going to be at that when you signed on. So I guess, was it, was there ever any hesitance? Yeah, completely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I think Paul has his own version of this story, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, w I, I was really scared because I thought these characters are supposed to be in a movie theater. They're larger than life. These are, you know, they're saving the world. I think because of this excitement that I had about honoring television, I felt like that's the best way for Marvel to enter television is by honoring the medium. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought that that. That with that part of it being on TV was exciting to me. Again, Disney Plus, same kind of vibe with Facebook, but yeah. kind of more of a uh, an industry. But it's an industry giant yeah. as opposed to a non an industry outsider. And so I felt more capable hands with Disney Plus. And the moments leading up to this release, I had I was mortified. I felt like such an insane amount of pressure that no one was putting on me. <laughs> What was I the just, what was the pressure about? Just to being the first thing, like you said, that that with Marvel that that the world had had seen in eighteen months, and it wasn't supposed to be that way, mm -hmm. you know. And even with the TV shows, and then um, this other crazy pressure of like, what the hell did we just film? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we filmed something crazy, totally. and so you either were going to be with us or not with us. Well, I. I think it's the most uh, awesome thing. And I will say I, I like I've always enjoyed Marvel movies, but I'm not one of these, you know, kind of obsessed guys. But this I thought was um, just the most creative, terrific thing. And I thought what was so amazing about your performance, which I, I really wanted to pick your brain about, was just in a way because each of these episodes is set in a different 
era, it's not playing just one character. There's so much that you have to tinker with in each episode. I mean, there was a, even just, you know, the physicality is just one aspect, but I thought it was interesting. There was a gif where I used it when I let people know that this episode's coming up where somebody very creatively, I guess you were standing in the same part of the screen in each episode at one point or another. So they were able to zoom through where it's just changing your, it shows you're changing looks throughout each episode. And, but I mean, it's, it's a lot more than the external there. These are, she's going through such different, interesting things at each of these. So I guess I just wonder, um, most things are not shot in sequence. Uh, that's one question I had, like, are you having to jump between eras? Are you having to like, ha this was, I think I read 115 days, yeah. the, the whole shoot. <laughs> that's crazy. That's like, I think it's supposed to be like multiple, 85. Multiple, <laughs> that's great. And then the pandemic in the middle. And I guess I just wonder if you can talk about for you, what were the most exciting and daunting aspects of, of this particular thing? I think the beginning was the most daunting um, having, cause we, luckily we, Matt Shackman, our director comes from theater and also is just like a lovely leader and really great at creating a company. And he brought everyone in for a week and we all went through the scripts. Some, some of us could, some people couldn't be there the whole time to watch all the sitcoms, but we did this entire week of rehearsal of trying to get the same language of what this world is calling those moments where we slip out of where they slip out of the hex, like our get out moments kind of thing. Cause that was kind of the easiest way to mm -hmm. phrase them. And then having a similar language of this is what we're trying to reference in this decade. This is what we're trying to reference in this decade. So we're all on the same page and then we had to do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and the first thing we're doing is in front of a live audience, the fifties episode was an actual live audience in Atlanta with an actual live audience. Yeah. And, and can we just say though, before that, I think you guys had really studied, you'd really immerse yourselves in how these different eras of sitcoms were looked and you know, what did they, like, yeah. they've called it boot camp. Is that fair to say? Yes. I think it was like the beginning of the day we would watch a lot of episodes and then the second half of the day, we would go through the, pay, the the scene by scene, do do dramaturg work, basically. And um, that's how it was structured every day, which was immensely helpful and also created this like fun at this fun ensemble immediately, mm -hmm. which is really important. I think you can feel that within our within our within our totally, show. totally. And you got some great character actors there with you guys with Catherine Hahn and Fred Melamed and all these different um, mm -hmm. people, but I get, Joe. yeah, exa exactly. Um, but doing it in front of a live audience for those, those first two uh, days, just the first, first one. Um, yeah. You'd done theater. Was that like doing theater or different or. Well, the issue was, is I thought it was like doing theater, but it's not because you're playing to a camera. Like it was, it was really my, all my instincts were totally screwed up <laughs> and I, I felt crazy. I, I had so much adrenaline. I was like probably speaking too loud. I, you know, it was, it was, it was hilarious and it was fun and it was silly and it was bizarre. Um, and it was, we did it. It was like an incredible feeling to have done it. And, and, and to have just been like, okay, well, there's episode one. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. 
And then I, and then I feel like after that, it really felt like we got into a flow. I started to feel way more comfortable within the 50s, 60s period, which allowed me to feel more comfortable within the seventies of comedy. And, and then really just like you were saying with the episode to episode with these different, almost like different characters, I just always thought of Wanda as being the best actor for that, for, you know, she needed, she needs, she needs to be the best at following the rules of these parameters uh, as to keep it all together. And whether, whether or not she has different levels of consciousness of what she's doing changes, but that is, that is kind of like the conceit of every episode is she's just trying to be the best version of this actor in this world. Had you ever really been able to do comedy like this before? No. And the closest thing has been, was like England goes West or something, but I have been talking about how I want to do comedy for a long time. And I would even have generals with people about comedies and no one, no one thought I was funny. (laughs) And so I, I luckily got to, got to, got to do some comedy. And also I, it's not about being funny. I just, I, I believe it's a muscle. It's a muscle and it is. And if you don't learn how to use it, you don't know if you have the ability or not. And I just, you know, took like screwball comedy class in in college and that's really about it. That was great. I think you were perfect for that. And then uh, just one other note here that I think we, you've said it was important to you is that this is something quote, everything that Wanda had gone through in the MCU had happened to her and she almost didn't have any agency, close quote. This was pre-WandaVision. So WandaVision as a antidote to that, how was how cool is it? I mean, I think you have primarily female writers, you know, a lot of scenarios from the pregnancy and the just I don't want to overanalyze, but it seems like this certainly to some degree rectified what might have been lacking in her earlier appearances. I think so. I, I And I think as an actress myself, I wasn't even as aware as maybe someone like Jack, who's a phenomenal writer, could see that all these people are making decisions on this woman's behalf. And she, uh, things keep happening to her. And she needs a self-evade. Like, she needs a sense of self. And this, what I, what I really love is this uh journey of her accepting because we've watched her for such a long time in the avengers wrestle with this idea of should she shouldn't she be a superhero what does it mean to her everyone around her she's lost because of it or not i mean except for parents um and and you know this is the first time we've watched her um have an acceptance of self and that is a very woman. It's like a woman coming of age story, right? And so I feel like that is what this show led her to becoming this this fully realized autonomous woman. Yeah. No, last two things, if I can, I'll just be brief. Yes, I, I mean, I got, I, we got the Dodgers starting in an hour. <laughs> I like that you have your uh, priorities straight there. Uh, so, I mean, this thing drops. Again, in a way that it's very different from having a movie get a nationwide release and all of that. But in the middle of a pandemic where everybody's at home and it obviously made a huge 
uh, impression on people. I guess I wonder from your perspective, how did you realize what was the what was the feedback like on your end? How did you, how quickly did you realize that people were watching it in huge numbers and loving it in huge numbers? Because I would be I would think that, as you say, you know, there's one can kind of have a very different experience if they're if they're not uh, showing up in the numbers that you would have hoped. What was this like as a as a contrast? Well, it was odd in many ways because I was filming Doctor Strange 2 and I was playing the same part and yes. we were, I was in a different country and I wasn't even in a major city in England. I was in a small river town in England. And so I I didn't see the, you know, in LA and New York, it sounded like there were lots of posters yes. and billboards and things like that. And I, I didn't see any of that. Um, so that was, so that was strange. And then you always get sent you know, something positive from people, <laughs> people that you work with. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing press and I could see like Catherine and Paul and Tiana make these like transitions of like, oh my, like they were so happy and, and we were doing press together. And I was just, I felt so out of, out of the, the experience of what they were having, which I was oh, fine with. And I was like, maybe when I rap, I'll figure it out. And that kind of happened, but I think what first, what I first realized, um, it, it had big numbers was, uh, because Disney plus had projected a certain amount of millions of followers they were hoping to have by that time. And it was like a hundred more yeah. or a million more yeah, right. or something crazy like that. And I was like, million, hundred million, <laughs> you know? And so I think that's when, that's when I was like, wow, that, those are numbers. That's pretty cool. And then I didn't realize the cultural impact it had until last week when um, Matt Shackman sent Catherine Hahn and I a video of um, a WandaVision drag brunch in Minnesota. <laughs> and because I, I truly believe that you, you have to reach a certain level of like presence in pop culture in order to be honored with something yeah. like that. And um and so I think that's, that's when I was, that's when I started to realize, wow, this people really did watch this thing <laughs> and talk about it. And they watched it weekly. Right. How cool. And loved it. Absolutely. All right. So then the final thing is just looking to the future, I guess, Dr. Strange, the number two, Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness, which we will see sometime next year back on a big screen. This, it seems like chronologically would have like, how did that work with, with WandaVision? Like, when did you, like, were you doing things in WandaVision knowing that it's going to feed into Dr. Strange too, or just all that? God, I wish. And, and, you wish. <laughs> and then just part two is, you know, this, I, I don't know if it, it might be hard for you to feel this in as we're, you know, we're still all sort of not back to full real life yet. And I guess, you know, as you say, sometimes people tell you, things you want to hear. But like, I honestly think, and I know that I'm not alone from having talked to a lot of other people who watch and, and write a lot about TV. I think this is the, like the best thing you've ever done. And that's not like there were, there <laughs> were other, uh, lacking, lacking other alternatives. This was really special. So I guess I just wonder where do you overall go from here? So I guess Dr. Strange too, and then just big picture, if you don't, if you don't mind. 
Well, that's nice of you to say. And you know what? I do feel like there's a point where things, where you feel like you've clicked in to your job and that's with a certain amount of hours of practice, right? And so I do feel like something physically changed doing Sorry for Your Loss season something, end of one or beginning. So there's something that I felt like, I think I understand this job a little bit better. And I do, and so I think that's, that's, that just comes with time. Right. And, um, anyway, Dr. Strange, I really wish that there was a plan that someone shared with me, <laughs> um, a little sooner. <laughs> so yeah, I, found out about Dr. Strange too and what the story was before we went for the last eight weeks of filming WandaVision um, during the pandemic. I found out in like August. Wow. And then I wrapped WandaVision on a Wednesday and went to England on a Friday. And oh um, it was, it was, it was a lot. And then I just got home like 10 days ago. So it was, it was a long time being in England. It was a long process. But looking looking forward is really exciting for me. I'm I did sign on to something that David E. Kelly wrote that um Leslie Linka Gladder is directing. And I'm very excited about that because it's another um it's another character where it's not like all it's not like extreme realism. There's he was, they're very fun scripts and it's a very clever way of telling this story of this woman, Candy Montgomery, who, um, was convicted of murdering, um, a, a friend and the woman that she, uh, who was married to the man that she was having an affair with at one point. And it's a very, and it happened in 1978 and the travels in 1980 and it was kind of like this national story. It's a very, uh, fun anti-heroine character. Yeah. And I'm very, ex I'm very excited for that. But beyond things like that, I, I do have projects that I'm, that I'm developing. I'm, I have created a children's book that with my, with my partner, my life partner, and who's becoming my work partner mm -hmm. that comes out next summer. And that will be a book series Ooh. with Penguin. And there's certain other kid space things I'm really interested in. I think I'm really, I might just be like wanting a baby, but <laughs> I also think it's, it's, um, this part of this, uh, it happened during the lockdown of wanting to really figure out like, how do you create, you know, more curious humans about the world and each other. And, and that's where it kind of started. And now there are other projects that I'm trying to kick off with my partner that, um, that kind of cover that generalization of how do you create art with the idea of a larger audience that creates more curious people and not curious. Yeah. Not curious. And like, I say this side and you say this right. side and therefore I, I am a part of the platitude of the side <laughs> or whatever, you know? Right. And that's not what I, I'm really, I'm really interested in how, how do we stop making, um, these, these defining qualities of sides and start, um, becoming curious a bit more 
with, with like open hearted goodness and all the, you know, cheesy phrases. But, um, that's, that, that is something. And, and then, and then the things I get to act in, I, I just feel like, are, it's just like, I want to be, I want to have a good time. Like I really, and with people that seem to have the same point of view of, of what makes, um, a healthy work environment and therefore hopefully, you know, a better product. Well, you're doing great. Congratulations on everything. Let's not let another 10 years go by before the yeah. next one. <laughs> and, That's only because I haven't had enough success. No, That's the only reason no, I haven't no, talked no, to you. No. <laughs> no. You're, you're, I'm, I need more critical success in order to get these chats. <laughs> I, I can't wait. I'm sure it'll be very soon again. And thank you for this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.